Lucia, when will your book be available on audiobook? I get asked this every day. It's coming. In the meantime, I thought I could drip it to you here, narrated by me, one chapter at a time, starting with the preface. So, here it is. Praised by Robert Cialdini, featured on NPR, and shot to number one new release status on Amazon within three days of release. Oh, and fun fact, I'm one of a very small handful of women authors on the topic. I hope you enjoy my narration of my splashy, sexy, smart, and stylish book, For the Forces of Good, The Superpower of Everyday Negotiation. Chapter 1. Arm Wrestling or Chocolate? A Negotiation Appetizer. First question. Who is the negotiator in your family, and how does that person do it? In my family, spoiler alert, it's me. But well before I was considered an expert in the field, certain personality characteristics contributed to effective negotiating in life, and that may very well be the case with you without you realizing it. For example, I truly like people. I'm genuinely curious about their life stories, where they've been, what their interests are. What makes them tick? The sincerity of that curiosity and my joy engaging with people is immediately discernible. In fact, if you listen to my podcast, Forces of Good, The Superpower of Everyday Negotiation, you can even hear it in my voice. Authentic curiosity about other people not only forms bonds, but contributes to information gathering. I was also pretty good at truly listening and demonstrating that I had listened and asking additional questions. I've consciously studied and practiced a variety of additional skills over the years to expand my negotiation toolkit. By contrast, other people may be endowed with traits that didn't come naturally to me and vice versa. They had to learn and practice those that were comfortable for me from the start. So I encourage you to think of that negotiator in your own family and what attributes make them so good at it. You don't need to be like them. You can be like you. We'll discuss this in a later chapter on negotiating style. But it's a useful thought exercise. Negotiation is everywhere, every day. It happens in small, unsexy ways that may not be consciously perceived as negotiation. Whenever you want something from someone else, you negotiate. Generally, we categorize negotiation into two types. One, deal-making. And two, dispute resolution. We negotiate a consumer complaint. We tacitly negotiate for the next open parking space at the grocery store. With our neighbors about fences, dogs, and noise, with colleagues and supervisors over assignments, compensation, vacation scheduling, even with ourselves. If I go for a run before work, I can relax and watch a movie after dinner. And who has kids? I rest my case. The perception that negotiation skills are a specialized superpower to be left to experts, but otherwise avoided whenever possible is, in a word, nonsense. 
Just because you aren't a trained Michelin star chef doesn't mean you can't prepare a perfectly satisfying spaghetti dinner for your family. In fact, I've preferred many home-cooked meals over a celebrated posh restaurant fare in my life. Well before formally studying and teaching negotiation, when I was often in situations punching above my weight class, my preparation, listening, and observation skills alone made me a secret agent. I'll let you in on a secret that may get me into trouble, as if that would be anything new. Negotiation experts, especially those with consulting businesses, have a vested interest in promoting negotiation as some paranormal skill so that you think you need them. Don't try this at home, kids. Don't hire me. Save your hard-earned money for a family vacation or a college fund for your kids and do it yourself. I can teach you. So, Let's make you better and more confident at something that is an everyday experience and that you may already be somewhat adept at doing without knowing it. We'll kick off this first lesson in everyday negotiation the same splashy way I initiated all my law students. I do wish to credit my mentor, Anita Christine Knowlton, the founding director of the Center for Negotiation and Dispute Resolution at UC College of the Law, San Francisco as the original designer of the curriculum we faculty members taught there. It all started with chocolate and arm wrestling. Yes, you read that correctly. Allow me to elaborate. On the first class of the semester, I would pass out 10 Hershey's Kisses to each pair of students, who were all seated at a U-shaped table in a seminar room. I instructed them that, for the purposes of this exercise, they should imagine that chocolate and the attainment of it was very important in their life. I would instruct the students to pair off with whoever was sitting next to them and to assume arm-wrestling position, to determine how to divide up the chocolates between them. Then I'd say, go. Admittedly, the typical responses included nervous laughter, blank stares, and incredulity. Invariably, we would have a student pairing, including one individual of substantially greater physical prowess than the other. I would stand back and watch what unfolded. Note, I never actually commanded them to arm wrestle. I merely told them to assume arm wrestling position. After a couple of minutes, I'd announce, stop, usually much to their relief. That's when I would say, let's debrief round one. Oh, that was just round one. Hmm, what might round two look like? And what could transpire between the pairings of disparate size in which the student of more formidable body mass claimed all the chocolates? Round one. How many just conceded to their partner? Why? When might that be appropriate? How many didn't feel like wrestling and just split the chocolates? And what happened there? Did they simply divide them evenly, five and five? Or was there a basis for division through discussion and discovery? We discussed whether building a relationship mattered and being mindful of future negotiations. This was, after all, just the first class of a semester that would require many more simulations. We talked about just wanting to win or losing sight of the instructed goal 
in this case, to obtain chocolate. These were law students who were training to eventually represent clients whose goals may not agree with their personal preferences. Round two. For the second round, half the room was instructed to decide together how to divide the chocolates. For the other half of the room, I picked one student in the pairing to impose on their partner a division offer on a take-it-or-leave-it basis. No counteroffers allowed. Again, I announced, go, followed by observation and another debrief, at which point they started to wonder how many more rounds and variations would ensue. We talked about exchanging information to learn about each side's real interests. Who did this? For instance, did one party have a greater need for the chocolates than the other due to depleted supplies, third parties relying on the commodity, etc.? What did students think about having leverage, i.e. being the one in charge of imposing a division rule, which could have been an offer of only one chocolate to their partner and keeping nine for themselves, and not using it? If the leverage was used, who on the receiving end of the offer rejected it on principle because it was unfair? If so, did they lose sight of the goal? I had instructed them that acquisition of chocolate was very important. Everyday super tip. Just because you have leverage doesn't mean you use it and doesn't mean you will hold on to it. Perhaps there's a longer game to be played or other factors more important than using leverage to win. This was ostensibly an example of distributive or fixed pie negotiation, that is, limited finite resources at stake as compared with integrative or expanding the pie negotiation, where more creative options and resources are explored beyond those transparent at the bargaining table. The chocolate exercises hinted that many times a situation that appears on its face to be purely distributive can be more expansive than originally thought. Round three. This time, I introduced asymmetry. I told one student in each pairing they would lose two chocolates per minute that they didn't reach a deal, and the other student in the pairing they would lose one chocolate per minute. And again, the debrief. We discussed other real-life examples of asymmetry. Perhaps one side has greater economic resources than the other. The luxury of time, while their counterpart has a sense of urgency greater access to information, more experience or expertise. Even a greater sense of emotional vulnerability is a type of asymmetry. The themes that emerged from the chocolate negotiations were basic. Reciprocity principle. If you make a gesture to someone else, the natural psychological response is for them to return in kind or even disproportionately. Leverage versus power and the use or restraint of either attribute. Cooperation versus competition. Relationships. Asymmetry. Finite resources versus expanding options. Finally, I left them to ponder the hypothetical of the chocolate baron versus the chocolate popper. A chocolate popper and chocolate baron are taking a walk in the woods when they come across a huge stash of chocolate. How might those players divide the chocolates between them and 
what might the considerations be in that negotiation? What does fairness mean? We discussed whether fair should be determined by objective data, subjective information, or some combination. Whether historical factors should be considered, producing lively debates about the wealth gap, social justice, reparations, gerrymandering, and affirmative action. Whether respective resources of each party should come into play. And when to bring in a third-party evaluator or decision-maker to determine fairness. As burgeoning attorneys preparing to assume representation of clients with problems that mattered deeply to them, a difficult notion to accept for attorneys and laypeople alike is that unfair is not the same as illegal. This is a gray area where fine-tuned negotiation skills can play a game-changing role in everyday life. Everyday super tip. Sometimes you need to walk away from a negotiation when no deal is better than a bad deal. If you walk out on principle, e.g. unfair, take a beat to determine if you are also walking away from an offer on the table for something that you really need despite aspects of unfairness. Thanks for listening. Negotiation isn't just for business. It's everybody's business. Every day. And it can be your everyday superpower. Stick with me here. And you can find my best-selling book on Amazon, For the Forces of Good, The Superpower of Everyday negotiation.